This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. In times of profound uncertainty, society may be subject to a veritable plague of toxic feelings and fantasies, which fuel various forms of political reaction. Professor Paul Hoggett, reactionary states of mind as the Holocene ends. 1.5 degrees C is already behind us. Could two degrees of warming arrive by 2030? Despite pushback, Dr. Malcolm McCullough makes the case from Perth during Australia's roasting hottest ever February. But first, UK professor emeritus and psychoanalyst Paul Hoggett on climate, victimhood, and the authoritarian urge. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock, exploring minds in twisted times. Never has our future been more unpredictable. Never have we depended so much on political forces that look like sheer insanity. It is as though mankind had divided itself between those who believe in human omnipotence and those for whom powerlessness has become the major experience of their lives. Yes, indeed, we all see it. In the UK, social policy researcher Paul Hoggett finds a key to retrogression and denial as climate and civilization itself spin out of control. Hoggett is Professor Emeritus at the University of West of England in Bristol. His latest paper is Reactionary States of Mind, as the Holocene ends. Paul is the co-founder and first chair of the Climate Psychology Alliance. From Bristol, Paul Hoggett, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Good to speak to you, Alex. Paul, listeners just heard the quote that opens your new paper, and it's from Hannah Arendt's seminal book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. That was published in 1951. It rings so true almost 75 years later. Doesn't that tell us that times of crisis come and go? Well, they certainly do. And when she was speaking, obviously, it was primarily um, an economic crisis, which had heralded the rise of fascism in the 1920s and 1930s. But I think this time we've got um, uh, an accumulation of different crises. But for me, the most important and underlying one is the ecological one. And you write, and I'm going to quote you here, in times of profound uncertainty, society may be subject to a veritable plague of toxic feelings and fantasies which fuel various forms of political reaction. That certainly sounds yeah. like politics now in North America, in the UK to some degree, and even in some surprising places in Europe. What has happened to us? Well, we as a Western civilization, I don't think are very good at dealing with uncertainty, either at an individual and certainly not at a collective level. When we're in a situation where old solutions um, no longer seem to work, there is a, a sense in which I think panic begins to spread out across the surface of, like, you know, petrol on water. When you see petrol spreading out across the surface of water, it's, it's a bit like that with panic. Um, it is one of the most contagious feelings around, something that's been thought about and reflected on for a long time by group psychologists. And the key here is a concept conceived almost a 100 years ago by German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. It's ressentiment in French. Uh, mm -hmm. And this French word sounds like resentment, but it's different. 
Yeah. The key is that in French and German, the stress is very much not just upon the resentment, but the way in which the feeling is nursed. In other words, normally one would think of resentment as a kind of um, a toxic emotion that would want, one would try to get rid of. But continental writers stress the way in which resentiment, as they called it, was a feeling which we, we nursed. And they, the phrase that uh, a number of writers have used was, it's as if we keep the wound open. We pick at the scab. We keep the soreness and tenderness in a way aflame. That's called nursing the grievance by uh, a number of people within the psychoanalytic world, nursing the grievance. And I think it's something quite familiar to us as individuals. But I think it, when, when it is a collective phenomena, it becomes a very powerful and uh, dangerous phenomena because essentially it's, it's what we would call an affect rather than an emotion. You know, an emotion has always got an object. An emotion like fear has an object. We are frightened of something or other. Whereas an affect like resentiment or anxiety doesn't have an object, so it's free-floating. You could say it's looking for an object to attach itself to. And that's precisely what populist leaders do. We have an example on stage here with Donald Trump, but really, mm-hmm. we're, we can't just say, oh, well, that's one person. There are millions of people who are following that mental trail who feel that they are victimized, and not just in America. Oh, no, no, that's right. I suppose one of the key differences we have now compared to the 1920s and 30s is uh, social media. You know, that's something which I think greatly amplifies these kinds of group psychological processes, which they didn't have in the 20s and 30s. It is remarkable how, nevertheless, the Nazis in particular were very calculating and clever and thoughtful about the way in which they used communication and propaganda. They were incredibly sophisticated people like Goebbels and so on. Um, They knew exactly how to, in a sense, anchor these otherwise toxic kind of affects, resentiment and anxiety, and give them a focus. And in their case, obviously, one of the key focuses was the Jews, you know, and the argument that the Jews in particular had, in some sort of way, stabbed Germany in the back during the First World War. You know, that was why they didn't, weren't successful. Or the communists, or, or whoever it might be, they would look for a, an object to anchor these kind of resentful feelings. Well, now it's the deep state, but nobody can really say just exactly who that is. So your first approach to this subject comes through the lens of psychoanalysis, but Nietzsche, followed by the German philosopher Max Schleyer, in the early 1900s, they developed a psychology of mind before Sigmund Freud pioneered psychoanalysis. Yeah. Is ressentiment really a thing in psychoanalytic practice? The nearest equivalent is in the work of uh, there's a British psychoanalyst called John Steiner, who um, I wrote about in that article, I think, that you saw, where he talks quite extensively about the way in which we nurse the grievance. And he links it to what he calls a psychic retreat, a place we go into in our mind, a kind of 
you would almost say it's an internal fortress where we look out from this fortress with suspicion, constantly on the alert, our radar constantly looking for the possibility of insults and slights and wounds of one form or another. So he would be the nearest one would get in terms of mainstream psychoanalytic thinking. But the familiar, the figure is very familiar. I'm, I'm also a practicing psychotherapist, and that kind of person who you might meet as a therapist, but also you recognize, I think all of us, recognize something of this in ourselves. We all have the capacity to do this. You know, it's important not to just locate it in the other. What, me? Nurse a grudge? <laughs> ah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, when, when I um, talk about climate communication, uh, particularly when we're engaged in communication on a one-to-one -one basis with friends, families, colleagues, or neighbors, it's so easy to go into these kinds of conversations harboring a kind of resentment towards the other who we imagine is going to be our opponent. And in no time at all, rather than the conversation we've got into an argument. When we look at attendees of Trump rallies, they're almost all white, many working class. You did a number of studies on white working class grievance in the United Kingdom. How did they go from we are the champions to we are the victims? There's a very interesting relationship, isn't there, between uh, victim and perpetrator. We like to keep those two things very separate as if they are separate categories. But of course they're not, and they, the, the victim and the perpetrator is in everybody and in every group, including, for example, at the moment, and I know this might be quite controversial, but I think in a, in a tragic kind of way, Jews who've become victims of the Holocaust in many ways now find themselves in terms of the conflict going on in Gaza as the perpetrators, which is terribly sad and tragic, but I think it's important that we understand that we're all capable of being both victims and perpetrators, that there's a very subtle kind of constant fluid relationship between these two things. Nobody is able to allocate themselves virtue. In the state of ressentiment, how does claiming to be a victim prove that that person is right, no matter what others say? Well, that's one of the great consolations of victimhood, of being, of feeling oneself to the victim, is victims feel themselves to be in the right. They feel themselves to be the object of persecution, and, and typically they are as well. These, this is not imaginary. But it's very difficult when we get into that way of thinking about our lives, either as individual or groups, to begin to understand that the good doesn't always just reside in us and the bad in the other. You know, that very simplistic way of splitting the world between good and bad is a very powerful and very destructive kind of dynamic. And we have to kind of, I think it's really important that we are able to own up to our own destructive capacities. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith from Bristol, UK. We're talking with Professor Emeritus Paul Hoggett, author of the new book, Paradise Lost, The Climate Crisis and the Human Condition. In the early days, followers of Adolf Hitler and Vladimir Lenin were convinced they were the good people 
doing the right thing. Paul, what can we learn from the differences and similarities in these supposed opposites of National Socialism, the Nazis, and Soviet communism? Well, both the Nazis and the communists in the 20s and 30s believed themselves to be in the possession of an ideal, an ideal which is in some sort of way a perfected view of the world and, and, and of reality, something that they themselves were in exclusive possession of. And I think this is the hallmark of fundamentalism, whether it's uh, Islamic fundamentalism, whether it's Christian fundamentalism, whether it's fascism. There is a sense in which one has, in some sort of way, exclusive possession of this ideal, of this way of thinking about the world and being in the world, which has this tremendous power to it, you know, the power to unlock all secrets, the power to get to the truth, that no matter what cost. Uh, and Hannah Arendt was very insightful about the power of that kind of ideal. She talked about followers of those kind of fundamentalist ideologies as adepts, you know, the, like, almost like the religious adept, you know, the person who has the sophisticated, detailed understanding of the religious texts, which nobody else has, and can see in those texts things that others can't see. And of course, we're in the, then, we're in the vicinity of modern conspiracy theory and the way in which it operates, and organized, and networks like QAnon, you know, where, in a sense, they're accumulating online adepts, aren't they? People who, who, are, who have these kind of texts which in the mind of the, these followers open all sorts of secrets that nobody else can see, but they have exclusive possession of. It's a very sophisticated and complex phenomenon, I think, this whole process of, of fundamentalist thought. In your new book, Paradise Lost, you find the climate emergency could drive authoritarian nationalism how would that work? There's uh, a concept that's quite well established now within thinking about um, climate politics, uh, which actually comes from an American journalist called Christian Parenti, and it's called The Politics of the Armed Lifeboat. If you like, it's like the metaphor is of the Titanic or some other huge liner sinking. So this is civilization, Western civilization. It struck an iceberg and there is a great danger of the whole vessel sinking. And it's already listing dangerously, and many, many people have started falling into the water. And they're floundering about and thrashing about, and there are already some lifeboats there in the water. And as they flounder and thrash about in the water, they struggle to board, to get on board these lifeboats. But the people on the lifeboats already realize that if too many people get on, they will sink and everyone will drown. And so they try desperately to push them off with oars, with guns, with whatever it might be to keep them at bay. So it's a metaphor of the armed lifeboat. And so if you think about it in terms of the, the, what's now happening with the climate crisis, one of the phenomena that we're already beginning to see is what I call ecological austerity that there are whole parts of the world already 
in which life is becoming increasingly uninhabitable. Central America is a classic example where crop failures repeatedly are driving people out of Central American countries towards Mexico and, and the border with the United States. And in Europe, we're seeing it repeatedly as climate change severely affects agricultural production in parts of the African Sahel and the Middle East. And so ecological austerity, I think, is very much happening already and is beginning to find its effect in food prices and so on. And the politics of the armed lifeboats basically says that as the ship starts to go down, as the climate crisis deepens, nations will be pushed towards keeping the others out and securing their own food and energy resources. So this is the politics of the armed lifeboat. You secure your own agricultural, your own food and energy resources. They're absolutely vital. And you begin to close your borders to keep out the refugees from Central America, from North Africa, from the Middle East, and so on and so forth. And I think, particularly in Europe, I can't speak about what, what, what it's like in North America, but particularly in Europe, you can begin to see this taking place very rapidly now as there's a shift towards authoritarian nationalism in a whole number of European countries. Hungary was the first. Um, Italy has followed. France might soon go down the same path. So that's the metaphor, the politics of the armed lifeboat. And if we don't watch out, uh, and if we don't begin to tackle this climate crisis, and there's no, much, not much sign of us doing it at the present moment, that's the kind of politics I fear that we're heading towards. And the great danger, of course, is, is then we begin to lose our collective humanity. Well, part of the modern mystique is a belief that science, technology, and effort can solve every problem. In your 2023 paper about reactionary states of mind, you suggest there may be no solution for the climate crisis. So what does that mean, and, and what then? Well, I don't know that I've said no solution. I don't think there is no technical solution. There is a, a, a huge desire for us to come up with some technical fixes, you know, like the giant aerosols at the high-altitude atmosphere, or... Um, carbon capture and storage or whatever it might be, some technical fixes to a problem which is fundamentally one about the way in which we organize ourselves, our economies, our politics and our cultures. And until we begin to change that way in which we organize those things, no amount of technical fixes is going to really, you know, solve things as far as I'm concerned. So we need to go beyond technical fixes, which very often just draw upon that very, a very Western form of rationality. You know, give me a problem and I will solve it in a technical, mechanistic kind of way. Whereas I'm sure you found from your own work and many of the people that you've interviewed that unless we begin to think in a systems way, in a systematic way, we will never actually find the solutions that we require. So it's not that I don't think there are any solutions, but the solutions have to be systemic ones, have to be systematic ones. 
So, Paul, many of us encounter people, friends, workmates, or family, who very strongly believe they are victims in search of justice. And all facts to the contrary are labeled as government or media or academic lies. How can characters nursing deep wounds, whether real or imaginary, be reached, or can they? That's a difficult question. I mean, there's a danger. Let's put it like this. There's a danger that climate change politics becomes a politics of the compassionate and concerned middle classes. And there is therefore a danger of it setting itself up in precisely the way in which populists such as Trump and others want to portray it as another kind of woke preoccupation of, of the middle classes. And they will therefore appeal to their poor, white, working class base and say, look, you know, don't take this. This is rubbish. This is, don't take this seriously. This is another lie from another globalist line. So I think it's absolutely crucial that a climate politics is also a politics of social justice and economic equality. Otherwise, we will just be so easily split off by populists such as Trump and others as middle-class do-gooders. Another long-time worry I've had is that there could be green fascism. You know, the the situation becomes so severe with storms and crop failures and so on that a great leader emerges to be a dictator of, of what energy you can use. I mean, when we look back, Hitler was a vegetarian. We we had Heidegger yeah. talking about the rights of rivers. There was a plan to, to restock with the original species the cleared-out eastern parts of Europe, a horrible vision of green restoration. So yeah. it, it could happen again. And I'm wondering, is there a way, when we're under super stress and there are millions of people on the move due to climate change, that, that we can... Avoid that fate of the green dictator. And that's a very important issue. Um, there's a new film that's just come out, which I very much recommend to uh, your listeners, called The Zone of Interest. I don't know whether it's come over to the States at the moment. But it's a film uh, based on the life of Rudolf Hess, who is the um, butcher of Auschwitz. And he was the commandant at Auschwitz, and he was a, a back-to-the-land lover of nature, and so is his wife. And it's portrayed very graphically in this film, you know, the idea that in some sort of way to be in touch with nature and to see nature as crucial is, is, is purely a, a liberal or progressive kind of value is something profoundly mistaken. It can be very easily incorporated into very nationalistic, if not even fascistic, kinds of outlooks. So that's a zone of interest? Zone of interest, yes. It's um, just come out in the UK two weeks ago. I'll I'll hunt it down and see if I can find a link for our listeners. Now, isn't there a bit of an element of what Alvin Toffler called future shock in all this? The, The public sees warnings all around. And developments like AI and climate change and cyber warfare, they, they can't really understand it, but they do fear it. So instinctively, they want to go back in time to systems where at least they understood the dangers. Is that a problem psychologically? Is that leading to ressentiment? 
we've got something there uh, maybe slightly different, Alex. You know, I'm not sure I've thought about it particularly deeply, but it strikes me that there is something also there about nostalgia, uh, looking back to times past in an idealized kind of way. Maybe there is a resentment about the future in that sense, a resenting one about the future, a bitterness about the future. And, and certainly you do find that with certain forms of uh, conservatism, particularly maybe with um, older people. It's the future itself which is uh, a source of complaint and hurt almost. So I think maybe there's something slightly different there between nostalgia and resentiment. But the, the way in which in many reactionary ideologies something of the past is fetishized, you know, make America great again, as if there was some golden age which has been lost. I mean, it was very powerful current in, in Nazi Germany as well. But I think the interesting thing about fascism and communism, that although certainly fascism had a very strong nostalgic element to it, it was also a profoundly forward-looking, future-oriented movement, you know, and I, I think I mentioned it in this piece that I, I sent you. Hitler was very um, irritated and annoyed with people like Mussolini, who, who were, he felt, just backward-looking nationalists. Fascism for Hitler was far more than that. It was, it was embracing the future, as far as uh, many fascists were concerned. Uh, and certainly many communists, you know, they saw the um, communism as, uh, well, uh, both of them, fascism and, and communism, as utopias. They were utopian movements, both of them. And I don't think we've reached that anywhere yet. There's a very important difference, I think, between authoritarian nationalism, often very backward-looking on the one hand, and these kind of fundamentalist utopian movements on the other. Uh, it's, it's easy as for us to see fascism everywhere, whereas actually I think it's a fairly unique and discreet kind of phenomena. Wrapping up here, you say the descent toward the reactionary state of mind is not irreversible. What can we do? What can we do? I think there are sorts of things we can do at all sorts of different levels. You know, at the most basic, simple, human, everyday level, there is something about really being clear and fighting for what we mean by humanity and human values, you know, because that is fundamental. If we're to avoid any kind of descent into inhumanity, we must know, you know, how that occurs so easily, so quickly, how any of us in that sense, can slip into that kind of inhuman way of thinking and being in the world. So I think that's the very first thing that we need to um, consider, is at a very individual level. Uh, and then, of course, collectively, we have to then begin to see how that translates into making a stand around certain fundamental issues. You know, so for many people in Europe at the present moment in time, one of those fundamental issues is the Ukraine and Russian attempt to destroy uh, Ukrainian democracy. And for a growing number of people in, in Europe as well at the present moment, 
the whole issue of what's happening in Gaza, again, is raising this issue of we must make a stand against a collective collapse into inhumanity. So there are these kind of moments in history when it becomes really important for people to make a, a kind of collective stand. And then, obviously, we've got to tackle these kind of big world issues that we're facing, and in particular, as I feel, the key world issue that we're facing is this, you know, the, the climate crisis, which um, we huff and puff about and come up with all sorts of good intentions, a kind of performative politics, but very little actually seems to change. Paul Hoggett is Professor Emeritus at the University of West England in Bristol. His latest paper is Reactionary States of Mind as the Holocene Ends. Look for Paul's new book, Paradise Lost, The Climate Crisis and the Human Condition. You can find links to follow up in my show blog published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Paul, thank you for helping us understand. That's a pleasure, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. The planet is hotter than ever, summer and winter. An experienced Australian scientist says the world is already past 1.5 degrees C, over pre-industrial. His new study, published in Nature Climate Change, suggests we may cross 2 degrees of warming in the late 2020s, way before mainstream projections. Malcolm McCullough and co-authors raise controversy and questions, but it may explain what all of us are experiencing lately. Dr. McCullough is Emeritus Professor with the University of Western Australia Ocean Institute. Malcolm won multi-million dollar grants for his research, particularly on coral. With over 270 scientific works, his work is highly cited. From Perth, Australia, Malcolm McCullough, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. And, and welcome to all your listeners here. And We're in, a, in for a very hot day down here in Perth at the moment. We're in the middle of a heat wave again. Again, and we have no winter here in Canada to speak of. It's been uh, quite, quite warm. It's very strange. All right, so your analysis of humble sea sponges created a lot of heat in climate science circles, but I want to go straight to what you found missing in the official story. What does the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, consider the baseline for pre-industrial times, the, the beginning of human warming in the atmosphere as far as they're concerned? So as far as they're concerned, it was from uh, uh, 1850 to 1900. And that's based mainly on the available instrumental records, in particular sea surface temperature records. And at the time that was set, which is not so long ago, just a few years after the Paris Agreement, that, that was all the information that was ha- available. So it was called a um, fragment, the word is pragmatic, placing the baseline at this point because there was no other choice. Instead, though, you went back to the 1700s and measured temperatures not with mercury in a thermometer, but in a type of sea sponge. Would you tell us about that? So it's also like another thermometer, actually, the way it works. So these are calcifying sea sponges. They make a calcium carbonate skeleton. And when they do that, um, they incorporate another element. In addition to calcium carbonate, they incorporate other trace elements. And one of them is strontium. And we know for many 
a lot of work is that the incorporation of strontium into calcium carbonate is temperature dependent. And we know that it's very well founded. So when they make the skeleton, they also have a thermometer working away, and that's, and that's the strontium-calcium ratio in the skeleton. And it's just a matter of reading that signal to get the temperature out of the seawater that they uh, grew in. And that's essentially what we did. Well, let's look at the history of warming as told by the sponge record. It shows warming in the 1700s a, a slight bit, but then a strange cooling in the early 1800s. Tell us what and why that is. Well, that's actually good confirmation of, of our proxy um, because we know that in 1815 in particular, there was the largest uh, volcanic eruption that yet occurred. That was called that was the Tambora eruption, and it caused a year without a summer. There was cooling right across the northern hemisphere. And the reason is the volcanic aerosols induced this cooling. They reflected heat coming in from the sun. So although it was a, a, triggered by a volcano, it was an atmospheric radiative forced cooling. And it's well known that now, of course, that volcanic eruptions cause cooling, but they're only short-lived. And that's exactly what we see on our record. So that sort of confirms that when you go back where you know a big event is, it's, it's really a marker event, if you like. We can reproduce it. But the age of coal burning was well underway before 1850. Steamships were replacing sailing. There were coal-powered railways. And uh, although those emissions were relatively low compared to modern times, there was carbon dioxide added to the atmosphere. How much early warming, not counted at all by the IPCC, did your sponges record? Well, actually, it's not a huge difference. It's this is a little subtlety. And I should say that warming, in addition to coal burning, what we call fossil fuel, there's also land use changes. There's been horrendous land use changes, and that's also add, added to emissions uh, early on especially. Um, so with our record, it, it's quite flat from virtually. There's a little, you point out, slight increase in temperature, but less than a tenth of a degree from 1700. If you just overlook the cooling, just go and look, we can see it's a very flat line almost and then starts to, to move upwards in about the mid-1860s. So there's actually very little warming up to the mid-1860s. But from 1860 to 1900, we th- see this about just over three-tenths of a degree, 0.3 degrees warming. And IPCC didn't have that. They've lost, they missed that. But in addition, I should say to your listeners, their baseline from 1850 to 1900 is too warm. When you look at it, in, in the oceans in particular, you'll notice that it's actually warmer than the early 1900s. It's a combination of those two facts, eh? They missed a little bit of warming. Oh, but it's not a little. It's a significant 0.3 degrees warming from 1860 to 1900. And then they had a baseline that was even higher still, about another 0.3 degrees. <laughs> so the combination of those two facts made the overall offset for the oceans about 0.6 degrees. And then when you add the land records in, it drops down to about 0.5 degree difference. As your paper points out, science has unresolved problems. In the early 1900s, the sea was cooling compared to land, you say. And then since the 1990s, land temperatures warm much faster than the sea. You write, in fact, in the late 20th century, with land air temperatures now increasing at nearly twice the rate of the surface oceans, regardless of the ENSO phase. What, what is going on? Why, why is the land warming faster now? Do we know? Um, yeah, we do. We, so the, most of the models, will, uh, well, we don't know exactly, but there's kind of a, when the uh, climate models are run, you see warming occurring in the high-latitude northern hemisphere 
around the permafrost areas of around Soviet Union and Canada, those areas, and also a little bit of extra warming down in the equivalent part of the Southern Hemisphere, but that's minor, well, around the Antarctic area, but that's, that's kind of slightly different. So the global models are showing this recent increased warming on the land, and the fundamental difference actually between with us and IPCC is because they got their baseline wrong by about half a degree, and then because they normalised that 1850, 1900 point, they forced the land to be... And the land records look overall pretty good, pretty consistent with ours, but although much more variable. They had the land starting to warm, as you mentioned, early in the 1900s. Ours stays together with the ocean. So the, those records, the land and the ocean warm together in our way of... In our, in our reconstruction all the way to about 1990. So it really only breaks away from the 1990s. So it's what we're, our observations now say, well, there's something different about the land in the late 20th century. Um, and as I just said, we think that's high latitude warming, but you can imagine there's been lots of other things going on as well that's causing the land now to warm uh, much faster. And your paper finds climate sensitivity is dropping, becoming half what it was before 1980. I, I'm not sure I even understand what that means. What does it mean? Well, it's, when I say sensitivity, that means sensitivity to the CO2 emissions, right? So when you calculate the temperature change, if you have a 10 ppm increase in CO2, how much is that equivalent to in temperature? That sensitivity is levelled off since 1880. Um, I mean, sorry, 1980 or 1990. But there's kind of some theoretical reasons for that. When you get when you get start putting CO2 in the atmosphere, it does start to slowly saturate as you get higher and higher concentrations. And so the amount of extra radiative heating you get from the additional amount of CO2 isn't the same amount as if you started at much lower concentration levels. So that's probably part of an explanation for that. Uh, but that's still being looked at, that, that issue. But actually the remarkable, so more, you know, an interesting thing is that the oceans now seem to be warming very, very constantly and steadily from about early 1960s onwards right up to our present day at a constant time rate, constant rate with time. Yet our CO2 emissions have been going up, especially the rate of emissions have been going up. So this is, we think, partly the saturation effect, which then gives the, uh, has the thing of the actual sensitivity for CO2 declining slightly. And so that's, that's the explanation for that. Well, that's almost a bit of good news in a, in a sad sort of way. Well, but as you say, I mean, during 2023 and onward this year, sea surface temperatures are literally off the chart hotter. Yep. They're above every year ever recorded. And yep. yes, we've got El Nino now, but that ocean heat wave seemed to start during a cooler La Nina event earlier last yeah. year. Yep. What do you make of this, Malcolm? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, all very, that's very interesting. First off, you have to... Your listeners remember all these events which we call ENSO events, they're El Nino Southern Oscillation. Each one is a bit different, right? There's no, every event you can see has slightly different characteristics. So our 2023 one, the nearest I think you can see was in 1998, but it looks a little bit different. So there's one explanation, well, it's just a variation in the type of El Nino. But actually in Australia here, we're they're now talking about heading back into a La Nina again, and we've had lots and lots of rainfall on the East Coast, and that's been unexpected in a way. Well, no one knows the answer. I'm just sort of trying to work our way through it, but it, it doesn't quite make sense, as you said, that it's just due to this starting of an El Nino phase. There seems to be something else going on. 
Well, it could be a, what we call a tipping point, that we've passed some tipping point in our climate system and now we're seeing all the things we've expected, like enhanced warming. And not only have, have we saw it earlier in the land, which we just spoke about, and now where the oceans are changing their behaviour. That's one possible explanation, you know, it may be, but we'll know about that in another couple of years, one or two years, as to whether we go back onto that long-term ocean trend that I spoke about of pretty constant warming. Or there's a third hypothesis that there was an undersea eruption off Tonga last year, which put a huge amount of water vapour into the atmosphere just for a short term, and people are speculating that extra water vapour means the atmosphere can carry much more heat and therefore that's causing that sort of very unusual warming. So we, we don't know. I hope, of course, that it's just a transient you know, departure, that we return back to our long-term trend because that's, that's actually, as you say, having the oceans, they're the big heat sink. If they start changing their behaviour, then that's very, very serious consequences. And we may, may in fact be you know, in the midst now of sort of going through a tipping point or regime change in the way the climate system is behaving. Please consider supporting Radio EcoShock. Find out more at our website, ecoshock.org. You can write me at any time. The address is radio at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith from the University of Western Australia Oceans Institute. Our guest is Emeritus Professor Malcolm McCullough. He says humans already warmed the planet beyond 1.5 degrees C, and 2 degrees is just a few years away. Malcolm, sadly, Australia has become famous for deadly wildfires. Uh, Canada just blew up all our fire records this year. It was amazing. Why do you think these fire and heat waves are becoming more extreme almost every year? Yeah, well, I think this is part of the fact that the the land is now warming twice the rate of, of the oceans. You know, the, so the warming rates on the land are much faster, and they've been doing that now for about uh, over three decades. And we've actually we've just got right now, as we speak, uh, in Victoria, which uh, we have now some of the worst uh, again another set of extremely bad bushfires. Actually, they've ironically had some good uh, fair bit of rainfall <laughs> way earlier. Then a very intense summer heat, early summer heat, dried everything out, and now we've had unusually strong winds, over 100 kilometres an hour, and these bushfires are just uncontrollable. There's no way that you could do very much preventative work and just have to sit back and wait for the weather conditions to change. So I think it's basically because the land's been warming much faster on average than it did before. This almost looks like twice as fast since the 1990s, and that's... Now, that's the inevitable consequence. Um, Here in Australia, it's a very, very serious... Although I should say a lot of our native vegetation is partly adapted to bushfires, but it's not not so intense bushfires. The very, very intense bushfires are now just decimating the the, the countryside and all the bushland. In fact, I live close to a park here, and we always worry about a bushfire getting started. We've had some fires here so intense that the soil has been sterilized, and then if the fire comes back within five years, it kills off all the seedlings, and then you get nothing. Anyway, one criticism of your study is choosing sponge measurements from a small area in the Caribbean to estimate global temperature conditions. Why do you say it works? Okay, well, I've explained why the sponges work, because they actually carry a thermometer, the other thing that I didn't say is that compared to previous ocean measurements, we've worked, the sponges live in what's called the ocean mix layer. So this is the surface ocean 
part of the surface ocean that separates the atmosphere from the sort of interior ocean. It can be over 100 metres thick. But it sees all the uh, warming signals coming from the atmosphere. But it's much more stable than than the upper 1 to 2 metres, which actually are part of this layer. So it has much less variability. And, and the sponges calcify very slowly and tend to average out seasonal changes. So this is a very low variability part of the oceans, but senses very the long-term changes especially. So, OK, we have ocean, so that's called... Our sensors sitting in this ocean in this ocean mixed layer, which is a huge advantage over the sea surface temperature measurements. You know that um, where they were throwing a bucket over the side of a ship, you know, no more, you know, half a meter deep, pull up the water, stick the bucket on the deck, and try and measure it. Because actually, if, as your listeners may know, that if you go swimming in the oceans, that uh, particularly, or even on lakes, um, that the upper one meter can be very different temperature to that waters below it. Right, so. It is, you get this skin effect, and that's probably partly contaminated some of these uh, records. So that's why the sponges, they're from the ocean mix layer, a big volume of water, that, that helps That helps a lot. The second reason is that you can, you listen to ask, well, what's so special about the Caribbean? Why is it working so well there? Well, when you look at all the instrumental records, for example, that have, you know, the last 50 years of records are very, very good. And you can easily calculate, and this is what they're doing, they calculate the average temperature of all those records. You can also sort of what we call invert the calculation, say, well, which regions look most like the average, right? You can, it's very it's easy to do. And this is done quite a lot because some, there's some processes like uh, where the ENSO is or, or for the Canadians you might know about AMOC, the Atlantic Meridodonial Overturning Circulation. It's a very big event off uh, northeastern Canada. The Caribbean is one of those regions where it looks like it follows the average, right? And there has to be many regions of the ocean that, whose temperature changes are proportional to the average change. And you can just... It's a straightforward calculation to do. And when I say... I'm using my words very carefully. It's proportional to the global average. Not necessarily equal to the global average, but within a constant, they're proportional. And I should say proportional to the surface ocean warming not the warming of the whole ocean. It's only the surface ocean, and that's, that's what the Caribbean is. And we were able to easily check that. We just took our records and compared it to the global average of the um, instrumental records for the last 60 years, and they agree perfectly, you know, perfectly with a, a very, very high confidence level. In fact, the only slight departures were these ENSO events, because when you're in the deeper ocean mixed layer, you don't see the El Nino so much as well. And as your listeners may know, you know, the... The heart of the El Nino is in the eastern or central Pacific, whereas the Caribbean is isolated in the Atlantic, and nor does it see the Atlantic AMOC phenomena, which is way up, mainly up in the northern Atlantic. Anyway, that's the reasons, that's my answers to those criticisms. Well, considering what you found in this natural record, how much heat should be added to the numbers presented by the IPCC and other big climate models? Well, um, for the oceans, if you're just considering oceans alone, they should add 0.6 degrees, roughly. That's within 0.1 degree. If you take what we call the global warming, the total warming, which is the land plus the sea, you only need to add, well, you have to add half degree. And the reason it's less is that the land, conventionally, that's considered about just around 30% of the signal. The ocean, 70%, just based on surface area. So when people talk about the global warming or such and such, it's the combined land and ocean. 
and as I mentioned, it's the ocean record that's been out by about by this larger amount. So it, what that means then is the global warming signal, you just have to add half a degree to it. Well, it's easy to do. So when people talk about, oh, well, are we going to cross the 1.5 degree threshold, really you've got to change. So well, what they mean now, we are, are we going to cross the 2 degree threshold? Or when we when are we going to cross the 2.5? Well, you just have to add, keep adding 0.5 onto the IPCC estimate. So it's an easy translation to do. Some scientists say humans started slow warming thousands of years ago by agriculture, deforestation, and land change, as you mentioned. Uh, but now you move the common definition of pre-industrial back to, well, pre real pre-industrial time, before 1750. Yep. Is, is that a change of definition, or does it matter a lot for where we are and where it goes? No, no it matters tremendously because... If we're talking about warming relative to the natural state, i.e. relative to the pre-industrial, and models, when models are run for the consequences, they're tuned to the, you know, to the stable pre-industrial, right? So when we're looking at the increment above the, you know, the real, there can only be one pre-industrial state, right? I mean, and you want to get as close as you can to the start of warming to define it. And that change now is half a degree difference to the IPCC 18, 50 to 1900, I put in quotation marks pre-industrial because it's not really, right? You know, the actual pre-industrial state, which models are always referenced to, is now shifted where an extra half a degree warming above the real pre-industrial state. And, and that's important because that's a stable state. So everything, you know, when you're talking about all these effects, of it, what's the increment away from stability? And the further you get away from stable states, that's when we can expect all these consequences, which is what we're now seeing. Just on a personal note, Malcolm McCullough, you are known for coral research, but this new work is about a particular type of creature, the sclerosponge. Are these animals? What do they look like? And do they have some similarities to coral reefs? Actually, very many. You know, they're, in fact, they're probably way back in... Uh, they're a much more ancient organism. They make calcium carbonate skeleton like corals do, but they, because they grow so slowly, actually, they, and they, they, they don't um, depend on, on light, so they're living in this kind of dark, called a mesophotic zone, I won't get too technical, but they're living below where corals are. So they're kind of an interesting... They don't actually make reefs, so, so to speak, but they kind of are a part of, of the tropical coral reef system in a way but the deeper parts that you don't normally see in fact if you go on scuba you have to go a bit deeper than regular scuba you can see the and you have a torch you can see the bright orange skeletons i mean tissues they're living like heart hemispheres attached to under the underneath the roofs of caves where they have little competition from the coral reefs i mean they can't you know a coral reef can of course the shallow water ones grow so much faster that these these guys just can't keep up. But the way I, the reason I'm working on them, they're all very similar. You know, we're, talk, we're talking about a calcium carbonate skeleton. You're talking about using chemical proxies to try and trace their history, in particular their temperature, uh, their temperature history. Um, so from my research perspective, they're a sort of a natural kind of archive to go look at and interrogate more closely. And why do you think the reaction to your study, some from well-known scientists, has been almost dismissive? Well, I have to say, some actually didn't read the paper. <laughs> One thing I know, right? 
I think the other thing is people are, are used to thinking oh, how much variability there is in these surface you know, coral reefs, for example, that every reef's different from the next. And, and so when I say, you know, the Caribbean gives us a global kind of signal, that's not an intuitive outcome, right? And you have to actually read through and go look carefully at all the reasonings that I, I went through just then with your listeners, why, why this is. So that's, that's part of it. And also the other reason is People who've worked, say, for example, on tree rings, right, or any terrestrial archive know that you can't extrapolate too much terrestrially from one place to the other because each place is so different. And yet a third reason is what we call these vital effects or biological controls on the proxies, how they modulate it. In corals, that biological control is reasonably strong. And in one of my other kind of well-known pieces of work, I was able to show that the... Um, the calcification of corals, um, they didn't just calcify from ordinary seawater, they calcified from seawater that was modulated with higher pH so that, for example, you've got to be careful, you know, they're more immune to ocean acidification than what we thought. But the sponges, these deep sponges, because they're so ancient, they calcify differently and they have much less biological control on the what we call the calcifying environment where they're actually making the skeleton. Almost they have little control, actually, so that means they're reflecting directly the seawater. Now, that, that's kind of somewhat unusual, but I was able to demonstrate it, and, 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 and it was sort of pretty well known because another proxy, carbon isotopes, looks very much like the seawater changes. They're the scientific reasons why perhaps people, if not fully aware, um, and I, but I think there's also an underlying thing that the IPCC is sort of, it's really a whole groups of scientists who get together and write these reports and people perhaps get a little bit too too wrapped up in that and, and sort of lose their sort of dispassionate ability, which all scientists we have to have, is we just have to assess data very dispassionately, don't have any biases, just see, you know, just interpret it as we see it and do it honestly and in a kind of a rigorous way and, and don't let too much of other people's interpretations in the past prejudices. We, just, we have to do it objectively. And I've done, I think I've tried to do that as objectively as possible. I mean, I don't have any kind of preference. I mean, you know, we're studying where we live, so we all have our biases. But what I'm saying, I think, is some of the biases and prejudices of the IPCC have coloured those views of other so-called experts. I don't like to say that, but I, unfortunately, that's, that, that's how I think it's um, evolving. Um, so, Malcolm, is the speed of warming increasing, and how hot do you think Earth will be, say, by 2035? Okay, that's an excellent question, actually, because I've looked at, you know, the, the way to answer it is to say, well, it depends on the rates of emissions, right? You know, if, if the emission rates remain high, then that'll we expect warming to be going very, very rapidly. Now, during our COVID era, you know, which is not, actually, we're still in it almost, the rates of emissions tended to plateau off, right? So they're at, in, in the units, they were about, per year, about 10 gigatons of carbon per year, plus or minus a little, you know. And the fact is that high level remains. There's not much evidence that it's turning down. We've got to go from that 10 number down to zero. That's emissions per year. And if we get it down to zero, that then means the atmosphere can stabilise. So ways if we leave the emissions even at the constant number of 10 gigatons per year, things will go pretty rapidly. Um, we'll certainly pass, we'll probably pass... Past two degrees? 
At two degrees, yep, that's exactly right. The next one, the next 2.5 will probably come in the mid-230s if we leave things alone. You know, if we keep having these super high emission rates. But I've looked at it carefully. If you start to say, let's turn down these emission rates and let's start doing it right now, we can certainly stop the temperatures. I think they'll get just above two. You can keep them down to just over two degrees if we started really rapid reductions, like 10% per year. So that 10 number, if we took off one, one unit off of one gigaton per year, in the next 10 years it gets to net zero, then you can probably just escape the, um, the two degree. Well, you'll get just a bit above two degrees. I don't think that's realistic, actually. <laughs> that's not going to happen. There are some reductions, you know, like maybe 50% of current by the mid 2030s, we can probably, well, you know, don't get above 2.3. I think it's going to be a struggle. Whether we get above 2.5 now is totally dependent on what we do with emissions, for sure. And so it's up to us, I guess, society globally to decide how rapidly, you know, we're going to decarbonise. And, and that'll, that'll dictate not only our future, but the future for our grandkids and their grandkids, because the CO2, once it's in the atmosphere, is there for tens of thousands of years. So it's um, going to, you know, we're setting the kind of agenda for the Earth's climate now for the next, certainly the next three, four, five thousand years. So um, Yeah, it's, it's like the, the ancient Egyptians make some decision with their civilization and we have to live with it now. That's how long it will go and much longer, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. From Perth, Australia, yeah, yeah. we've been speaking with well-known ocean researcher Dr. Malcolm McCullough, he leads the paper titled 300 Years of Scalero-Sponge Thermometry Shows Global Warming Has Exceeded 1.5 Degrees C. It was published February 5 in Nature Climate Change. This paper is open access. It is free to you. Or you can check out Malcolm's article in the conversation. I'll put links to all of that in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Malcolm, thank you for sharing your work with us. And thank you very much for the opportunity too, and uh, it's been a pleasure. And um, all the best in Canada. Um, I think we'll all need it across the globe. Microsoft Copilot pretends to succeed, but cheats and fails. It has limited uses. The icon for a Windows AI showed up on my screen. I tried it on the search Donald Trump and Resentiment. The results were impressive, I will say, with citations. But five out of the six paragraphs cited just two sources, meaning Copilot paraphrased from one peer-reviewed article and a piece of journalism. That's it. A couple of people had their work used, but no credit mentioned in the text, and certainly no royalties or pay. They just take it and make it their own, as any failing college student learns to do. Getting beyond the text ideas, Copilot floundered. I asked the number of listeners on SoundCloud for Radio EcoShock, where we post every week. The figures returned were flattering, but completely untrue, up to ten times larger than the obvious totals that SoundCloud gives you. Copilot made it up. I asked how many views on the Radio EcoShock YouTube channel. Copilot returned the same false numbers as for the first question. But one of the top listed programs in their AI result appeared on radio, but never on YouTube. It was a total fabrication. How many people will rely on this major brand AI 
and lose face or money or something else? Too bad, but this chat GPT-4 artificial intelligence is too artificial. Not credible. Not even trustworthy. That's my take. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for staying tuned and caring about our world.